Today's sponsor is Audible.com, which has more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products. Get a free audiobook of your choice at audible.com slash decode. Recode Radio presents Recode Decode, hosted by Kara Swisher, powered by digital media. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, executive editor of Recode. You may know me as the only person who liked Ted Cruz in college, but in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about tech and media's key players, big ideas, and how they're changing the world we live in. Today in the red chair, we have Eric Weiner, the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Geography of Bliss. He now has a book called The Geography of Genius, in which he tries to understand how our surroundings might encourage us to be smarter and more innovative, a perfect topic for people in Silicon Valley. Welcome, Eric. Thanks, Karen. I'm delighted to be here. Uh, So your first book was enormously successful, and New York Times bestseller, everyone knew about it. Talk a little bit about the first book itself, because I think people want to get an idea of who you are. Well, you know, for most of my career, I was a journalist, a foreign mm-hmm. correspondent for NPR. And like most journalists, I, you know, specialized in misery. Mm-hmm. That's what journalists <laughs> do. You know, I'd, I'd wake up every morning and i think, what's well, wrong? I'd think, what's, where's the most miserable place in the world? And, and I would get on an airplane where and go there. Where are they fucking something up? I'm sure. E- exactly. Uh, you and, know, I, I read the New York Times yesterday and literally I read out the headlines to someone and it was like one horrible thing. And I'm like, I'm getting back in wrist. bed. Ima- you know, and that's reading the New York Times. Imagine right. like reporting on NPR. So I had that, you know, light bulb moment where I thought, well, what if I spend a year traveling the world looking for the happiest places? Mm-hmm. You know, and the second light bulb moment was, what if I got NPR to pay for me to do this? Mm-hmm. Um, they didn't go for that. No. Um, but I wrote a book about it. And it's fun. It's travelogue. It's philosophical. It, this may sound a little grandiose, but I like to think of myself as a philosophical traveler. Mm-hmm. What interests me is the intersection. Well, there's been many travel writers like Yeah, that. but I'm really interested in the intersection of place and ideas, mm-hmm. you know, where they come together. And I'm a place person. You know, they're, they're dog people. They're cat people. Mm-hmm. They're numbers people, words people. I'm a place person. I, I look at the world through the prism of place. Okay. So, which, analog. Essentially analog in this digital world. or, oh, or that. well, now that sounds like an insult. No, it's not. Analog okay. is not an insult. It's not an insult. Luddite. If I called you a Luddite, that, that would be, be an yes, insult. Yes, okay. you Luddite. Um, yeah, I suppose analog. If we got all esoteric, we mm-hmm. could say that the internet is a place. Because when I talk about place, I'm really talking about culture. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what interests me is is the way this thing called culture, this fish tank that we're all swimming in, mm-hmm. affects us. And you could argue that that exists online as well. But for the most part, right. For most of human history, it has been this analog thing. Called so you bliss. went around looking for bliss. Yeah, is it still a blissful world? Did you ever want to do a second, like a go back and see if those places were well, I, miserable? As, as part of that book, I did go to the least happy country in the world, mm-hmm. Moldo- which is Moldova. Moldova. Yeah, 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 yeah. They're really unhappy there, and mm-hmm. for interesting reasons. No, I, I'm interested for the most part in the positive aspects of life, mm-hmm. which is why I'm no longer a daily journalist. Is there a new happiest place on earth? Ooh. That's a good question. No, they've remained pretty consistent. You know, Iceland is still doing well despite the economic upheavals they've had since my book came out. Mm -hmm. Um, They've weathered them pretty well. And uh, Bhutan is still humming along with its gross national happiness. Mm -hmm. No, I would say they're pretty much the same. So we're going to get into your new book next. But right now, this country doesn't seem a very happy place. There's so much angry. It's never been that happy. Right. You know, it's particularly unhappy right now. Yeah, that might be true, but the happiness of a country, it sort of transcends the, if you're talking about politics, which I think you are, the political rhetoric of the day. 
And uh, it takes a lot to move the happiness needle. And we're not in the top 10. We've Mm -hmm. never really been in the top 10. Mm -hmm. So uh, we could probably talk for an hour and a half about why that's the case. But uh, suffice to say that, you know, we're number one, the biggest economy in the world, the biggest military. We're not a happiness superpower. But we are in genius and innovation. Yes. Maybe. Yes. Maybe. Well, we're known for that. So here we are in Silicon Valley, which, you know, right. created a few little objects that have become important around the world. Phones, it, uh, cell phones. It has. Uh, the internet. Uh, all the big internet companies are it, here. But let's step back a few thousand years. How does it stack up compared to ancient Athens? Right. Renaissance so let's, Florence. Let's be, talk about it. Talk about this book. How did this book get started? What was the... It's another big it? idea. Mm-hmm. And... Genius is big and genius is important. And when I, I want to be clear when I talk about genius, I'm not talking about just a high IQ. Mm-hmm. That doesn't right. interest me. Smart I'm talking people. about, yeah, no, because there are plenty of people with high IQs who don't produce anything. I'm talking about creative genius, mm-hmm. creating something that is new, surprising, and useful. Mm-hmm. That's the definition you have to meet by the U.S. Patent Office, by the way, to get a patent. Mm-hmm. So that's a, a good working definition of genius. And yeah, I mean, Silicon Valley has produced. Its own version of genius. Mm-hmm. Let's put okay. it that way. We're going to go into that. Let's talk about this book. So you you decided to go around. Explain what you did for the readers, what you've done here in this book. I looked at a map, mm-hmm. historic map, and identified seven genius clusters. Because mm-hmm. genius doesn't appear randomly. There's mm-hmm. not, you know, one well, in people Berkeley. people think that. Can you, there's always an argument of can you create Silicon, there's always Silicon Glen, Silicon Alley, right. Silicon, and it never works. It really. never works. And, it you never know, works. to me, that's when I say analog. This is a place that works for a reason because it's a place. Right. I like Hollywood works as a place or Bollywood or the finance And this place has very little to do with technology, Mm -hmm. actually. At least the process is is, -hmm. is cultural, Mm -hmm. you know. So I I identified these seven genius clusters that you're right, grew organically. Uh, Some you're probably familiar with. Well, ancient Athens and Mm -hmm. Renaissance Florence, you're probably familiar with those. Mm -hmm. Less familiar is... Edinburgh, Scotland in Mm -hmm. the 18th century, which is an incredible genius cluster. Mm -hmm. Uh, Vienna had a rare double dip of genius, the Mm -hmm. sort of musical Vienna of Mozart and Mm -hmm. Beethoven, and then the Vienna of Freud, among others. And I went to some really unusual genius clusters that you're probably not familiar with. Okay, Hangzhou, China, Mm -hmm. 13th century, the Song Dynasty, a city of a million people at the time, while Europeans were picking lice out of their hair and wondering when the Middle Ages were ever, ever going to end. China was doing amazing things. And Calcutta in the late 19th. Yeah, most people think of Mother Teresa in Mm -hmm. misery. Um, But it had its moment in the sun. You know, it produced the first non-Westerner to win the Nobel Prize. Let's talk about each of these genius places, and then I want to do bring it back to Silicon Valley technology, because people here think of themselves as geniuses, and they call themselves geniuses. Oh, no, never never trust someone who self-declares as a genius. True, but they have created some cool things. They they, They have. And and I think a lot of people feel the country, it matters that this is a cluster of something. No, it does matter. Yeah. And we can talk about why it continues to exist. Yeah. Well, we'll get to that first, but let's talk about the ones you started with, obviously right. ancient Greece. What happened there? You know, it was if you went back in time and you were to say, well, which of these hundreds of Greek city-states is going to be the golden age, you would not have picked Athens. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was... It was not the biggest. It was not the strongest militarily. It didn't have a lot of things going for it, but it did have an open mindset. It looked outward. It had an open immigration policy. Mm-hmm. Very interesting and a common thread for all of these places. They welcomed foreigners in, even though Pericles, who was the leader at the time, said, this may not be such a good idea from a national security point of view, but we mm-hmm. do it anyway. No. And this may sound a bit heretical, but one thing that made Athens great is that they were moochers. Mm-hmm. They were tremendous moochers. Mm-hmm. They, they borrowed. Explain mooching. 
Mooching. Uh, it's, it's a verb. It means to steal from others, basically. Mm-hmm. And that's what they did. Plato said, what the Greeks borrow from foreigners, they perfect. Maybe that sounds like this place. You know, I once, uh, someone at Walmart, it might have been Sam Walton, he said that the plains are covered with the bodies of pioneers. Yeah. You know, and he meant that they're fast followers. They borrow all kinds of ideas, right, which is interesting. Right. But get back to ancient Greece. They, they borrowed. They borrowed. They borrowed uh, statue making from from the Egyptians and mathematics from elsewhere. But they did perfect it, and they were sailors and they were open to ideas from the outside world. Now, why is that helpful? Why is immigration mm-hmm. helpful? Well, it's helpful because a immigrants bring fresh ideas mm-hmm. in themselves, which are helpful. But there's kind of another aspect here because creativity, I believe, is contagious. Mm-hmm. Right? Once it gets going. And so once you you've always, you know, you're the fish in the water and you've always been in the water and you don't think there's anything else but this water. And then along comes an entirely new kind of fish and you're like, wow, there's a it swims differently. There's a different way of swimming. And you might not swim that way. You might find some other way of propelling yourself. But the presence of outsiders opens your mind to the possibility of possibility. Right. And that's, I think, the real So this benefit. was important in ancient Greece. It was important what, there. It's been important in all what these is, places. What did they do? I'm going to go through each of them, if you don't mind. Uh, what did they do there that you think was the most genius thing? What was the result of their genius? Is they asked the question, why? Mm-hmm. You know, people before didn't really ask why, mm-hmm. not the way the Greeks did. And Socrates in particular... He was an annoying person, right? Because mm-hmm. he would, if he was sitting down here with you, he would say, well, why are you wearing that shirt? Well, mm-hmm. I just chose it. Well, why did you chose it? What, what was your mindset? I mean, he would make you question your assumptions mm-hmm. that we don't normally do. We normally go through life on autopilot because it's more efficient. But they, Socrates asked why. They all asked why. It was that that sense of wonder mm-hmm. that really is the basis for all of science and for this place, mm-hmm. you know, Silicon Valley would not exist without a curiosity and a deep, deep sense of wonder and awe. Uh, that's important. And the Greeks were really, the Athenians in particular, were the first ones to seriously ask that question. Why? What the fuck is going on here? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what, is there someone there that you think set it off? Is there a center of that in that particular? I mean, I can, within all these places of mm-hmm. genius, there are intimate spaces where people get together. Right. And in Athens, it was two spaces. There was the Agora, which was the marketplace, which was the original everything store way before Amazon. Mm -hmm. You could get everything there, including stolen goods and Mm -hmm. everything. And people came together and they and they talked and it was chaotic. That sort of chaos is important. And the other place was the symposia, which means literally drinking together. Next time you go to a symposium, keep that in mind, Mm -hmm. drinking together. And um they drank a lot of wine, but they watered it down. Uh, five parts so they water. Somewhat intelligent. Exactly. A lot of a little bit of alcohol makes us more creative. Studies show, and a lot of alcohol makes us fall down. And mm-hmm. the Greeks sort of knew this <laughs> intuitively, um, but it was that freewheeling conversation and conversation among people from different disciplines. They didn't really have disciplines back then the way we do. But this is, I believe, just a common thread in all creative places, including this one, which is you you don't have these silos. You don't have these fortresses of knowledge. Or if you do, people are willing to invade other people's fortresses. Sure, we're going to talk about it later, but they become silos, though. It turns yeah, into it. but I, I, I mean, I, just a common theme throughout my book is that specialization is bad. Mm-hmm. And that genius, geniuses don't know more than other people. They see more. Mm-hmm. Einstein wasn't a know-it-all. He wasn't a know-it-all. He was a see-it-all. Mm-hmm. And it's that ability to seek connections. Let me give you one other sure. one, one quote that I think just sums up genius beautifully by the German philosopher Schopenhauer. He says, talent hits the target no one else can hit. 
genius hits the target, no one else can see, mm-hmm. which is good. Ooh, that's a deep quote. Yeah, but I would add that once you hit that tar- invisible target, other people have to see it. Otherwise, you're just crazy, right? You're right. just hitting invisible targets, and people are like, what are you doing? Right. I'm hitting that target over there. I don't see anything. Well. So they have to make people aware of that invisible Absolutely. target. Absolutely. That's a real, you yeah. know, you could. Is this too deep? No, it's perfect. Okay, I love it. Good. No, it's just, I'm just thinking there's a lot of people in technology, which we'll get to in a little yeah. bit about, that did that. And then Steve Jobs actually did exactly what other people were doing, but made people see it. Right. Which I think was different. Right. Talk about the Renaissance, obviously, another time of great. So, yeah, it was. God, what a flourishing, right? right. Michelangelo, Why? Botticelli. Money. Money. Yeah, money. money. We don't often We've associate. we got lots of that here. Yeah, we don't often associate money and genius. We think that genius is sort of doesn't dirty its hands with money, mm-hmm. but that's not true. The, the, the Medici's, they were bankers. There was a cloth trade uh, that they excelled in, and they were patrons mm-hmm. of the art. Uh, but they were, they, they got it. They knew art. They weren't the just. the original VCs. Yes, and I do make that connection, yeah. um, and it's, it's an obvious one, but you can't ignore it, that they were placing bets on people, but they placed bold bets, mm-hmm. you know, and they had a keen eye for talent. Look at uh, Michelangelo. Today, we think, well, of course, he was the right person to paint for that Sistine Chapel mm-hmm. job. Mm-hmm. At the time, he was not an obvious choice, right. you know. I mean, he had mainly done sculpting and, and not painting, but... Pope Julius II, who was a Medici himself, said, I'm going to bet on you. I want you to do this. Mm-hmm. So it's this, it's this boldness of choosing someone who looks like a bad fit mm-hmm. for a seemingly impossible task. Why did they do that? Why? Why did they suddenly fund? You know, culture was – it was like T-bills of the day. You know, the city had been decimated by the Black Death, the plague. Mm-hmm. And this is common for golden ages. They're often preceded by upheaval, catastrophe mm-hmm. even. And that shook things up. And then all of a sudden, just in, investing in business seemed too risky. So they invested in culture. And, you know, they had some deep appreciation for it as well. Um, they weren't, you know, you can have money and throw it around and not cultivate genius. Mm-hmm. You know, you look at some of the Persian Gulf nations today, there's lots of money, but they're not producing lots of genius. Mm-hmm. Um, and something else that was going on in Florence was a, a kind of internship program, if you will, called Bottega or workshops. And... There was one run by a man named Verrocchio, so-so artist, but a great businessman, and he had a great eye for talent. And one of his interns, mm-hmm. apprentices really, was Leonardo da Vinci, mm-hmm. who spent 10 years there, you know, much longer. It was like the never-ending internship, but mm-hmm. he obviously was learning a lot. And this, what's amazing, Kara, is you look, there's one painting by Verrocchio called Tobias and the Angel, and there's a fish in the painting that looks a lot better than the rest of the painting. Mm-hmm. And art historians now believe there's a reason for that. It wasn't painted by Verrocchio. Da Vinci at 17 years old. Mm -hmm. You know, it would be like a, to bring it back to Silicon Valley for a second, you know, some startup firm, you know, allowing the intern to code the software or whatever. And he's Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah. And and to give them that kind of responsibility. They do that, by the way. You have to be 11 to code here. (laughs) You're older than that. You're done. (laughs) You're washed up. Yeah, youth is another one. So two things we've got, why and money. And we're going to talk about more when we get back. But first, let's talk about audiobooks. If you're always on the go like myself and don't have time to sit down and read, Audible.com is a great source to be able to catch up on the latest bestsellers. Listen to it while on the road or at the gym. Audible.com is a leading provider of premium digital spoken audio information and entertainment on the Internet. Audible content includes more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products. Audible carries audiobooks in every genre imaginable. Business, classics, history, and self-development, just to name a few. Eric, 
What book should I listen to next? Other than mine? Other than yours. I hope it's available in audiobook, Italo Calvino's Invisible Cities. Why? Because he imagines 56 cities that are fantastical places. They're little one-page descriptions. And he imagines cities where instead of air, there's soil. Uh, Cities where people live in nets upside down. (laughs) It is so imaginative, and it was by my bedside when I was writing this book. Invisible Cities Invisible by Italo Cavino. Fantastic. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook of your choice and a free 30-day trial membership. Go to audible.com slash decode and choose from over 180,000 audio programs. Download a title free and start listening. It's that easy. Go to audible.com slash decode. That's audible.com slash decode and get started today. We're here talking with Eric Weiner, the author of The Geography of Genius. His previous book was The Geography of Bliss. But he's talking about how genius occurs in the world, and it's a place-based approach that you're taking to this idea. But they do have commonalities, all these places. They do. You know, I I hate to tie things up in a bow, but I'll give you a small bow. The three Ds. Diversity, discernment, and disorder. Okay. Diversity of ideas. I'm much we'll less get in- into diversity. As yeah, well. I'm less interested in ethnic diversity. I'm mm-hmm. interested in intellectual diversity. Mm-hmm. Discernment, which is separating good ideas from bad ideas. So all these golden Taste. ages I looked at were magnets for talent, but they were also colanders that sifted out the crappy ideas. And that's mm-hmm. important. We, we You can't just be, you know, open to everything. Las Vegas is a very tolerant place. It's not a place of genius. Mm -hmm. And disorder. That's that upheaval I was talking about, Mm -hmm. that you need to shake things up. one of the favorite words. Yeah, yeah. I have some issues with disruption. I agree agree with you. I'm just saying that's the buzzword. Yeah, but I'm talking about a kind of disorder and there's some interesting research looking at the connection between chaos theory and Mm -hmm. creativity. Mm -hmm. That Chaos is sort of a necessary phase to go through on your way to a new order, to creating something new. And our our minds, our brains, when introduced to, say, a new smell or a new flavor, they'll enter what one neuroscientist calls an I-don't-know state, Mm -hmm. a chaotic state. They can see it on the EEG. And you think about it, that's essential. Yeah. I mean— Most people don't like to say that. Right. But— Ignorance is essential for the creative process. Absolutely. Let's get more to these places, and then we're going to talk about Silicon Valley at the end. Vienna? Yep. Two, two dips. The double genius. dip of genius, which Freud sounds like a and Ben and Jerry's the music flavor. Guys. Yeah. Um, music, uh, I would point out that uh, you look at Mozart and people think, oh, clearly genius is genetic. He was born with that. Mm-hmm. Not so fast. He was born into a, a very musical family. His father was the mm-hmm. premier violin instructor of the day. He was born in a musical time in a musical place and moved to Vienna, which was the place to be. And what's fascinating about Mozart is I think his relationship with his audience. Mm -hmm. You know, he had a demanding audience. I mean, everyone in Vienna played an instrument or knew music. And Mozart purposely created his his music like a Pixar movie. Mm -hmm. You know, you go to a Pixar movie and it operates on two levels. There are the jokes for the kids and they get it, but there's a whole other level of humor for the adults. (laughs) Right. So the the everyone's happy, right? You and your kid. Um Mozart actually said in a letter to his father, you know, I create my music. He didn't say Pixar, of course, but Mm -hmm. to operate on two levels so that that the connoisseur will appreciate it and the everyman will appreciate it as well. So he was driven by the demands in a way that the audience made him. So he had a great audience. This is another He had a great audience. And I would argue, Kara, that the audience actually was kind of a co-genius. You know, Mm -hmm. we think of genius as just – 
you know, the genius creates. Out of your head. Well, yeah, or the genius creates from on high like a god, like a Steve Jobs. And, and then we just lap it up and we have, you know, we're passive in the process. But I would argue that we, the appreciators of genius, the connoisseurs of it, are co-geniuses. Mm-hmm. You know, without us, the genius is nothing. Mm-hmm. You know, to be able to recognize and appreciate it. You cannot separate the creative act from the recognition of the creative All act. All right. And the second period? Uh, I call it Freud's Vienna, but it was Freud. It was Gustav Klimt, the artist. Mm-hmm. And what's fascinating there is that you had sparks flying in lots of different directions. And what's interesting is that when you see a breakthrough in one field, say art, mm-hmm. you often see breakthroughs in other completely unrelated fields. Mm-hmm. Because what happens is people see a break in the air in one field and on sub some unconscious level, as Freud would put it, they think, well, why not my field too? You know, it's, again, it's the possibility of possibility. Um, So, and Freud's a classic genius story in that he was an outsider, an immigrant and a Jew, didn't really fit in, but didn't fully not fit in either. You know, he was accepted enough that he could push for his ideas that were dismissed as fairy tales at first, but he eventually won people over. And I'd say there's a sweet spot for all geniuses. They are what I call insider outsiders. Mm-hmm. They're, they're outsiders because if you're fully invested in the status quo, you're not going to rock that boat, sure. right? But they're inside enough that their ideas do resonate and ultimately are recognized. Because the outsider status is another thing that's celebrated. Right, but not too far outside. Yeah. Those people, well, a word is, for those you people. Know, I would Crazy. argue Silicon Valley is the most insider place that thinks of themselves as outsiders. Because well, they were outsiders in different ways when they were growing up. Right. And the question is, can they maintain that sweet spot? Absolutely. You know? And I, I've, get, I've thought about, you know, how long is this place going to last, Silicon Valley? Because, you know, the truth is that these golden ages are, are fragile sure. things. Yeah, they don't, they don't last that long. A few decades, a century maybe. And it's almost like they're these unstable elements in the periodic yeah, table. Absolutely. They can't hold themselves together. So the two others that you talked about that were, we weren't thinking about, Calcutta and China. Yeah, yeah. so... And China was, you know, in the 13th century, and Marco Polo went there and sung the praises of China. I mean, mm-hmm. it was a city of a million people, Hangzhou. It was ruled by poet emperors. Mm-hmm. Couldn't we use a few more poet emperors? <laughs> oh poet God. politicians. Well, so it was kind of top we have down. Internet they, troll candidates. Exactly. Right. And, and they invented the compass, and they invented toilet paper. Boy, how great is that? And, and sparks were flying in, in different directions as well. And it's interesting that there's... There really is a Chinese approach to creativity because creativity is really based in our deep creation myths, you know, and we all, whether you're religious or not, if you come from a Judeo-Christian background and live in a Judeo-Christian society, you think of creativity as what's called ex nihilo, from nothing, literally from nothing. So That's not true. It's never true, mm-hmm. you know, and I don't believe it's true for this place, for Silicon mm-hmm. Valley. And, and, and Chinese creativity is much less interested in novelty and much more interested in, in usefulness. If mm-hmm. an innovation isn't useful, they don't consider it creative. And, you know, there's a lot of hand-wringing there. I met with Jack Ma, mm-hmm. uh, founder of Alibaba, when I was there, and he had had some interesting things to say about Chinese creativity. Mm-hmm. You know, Well, and, most people thought they were copiers, and then now they're doing some what many consider one of the most innovative things happening now are coming out of China. And that would be a return to the way things used to be, uh-huh. right? And they take a very cyclical view of history and of time, and maybe we're getting metaphysical here, mm-hmm. but if you have a cyclical view of time, you th- you don't see these golden ages as a one-way street. You're mm-hmm. up, then you're down, mm-hmm. then you're up again. 
Mm-hmm. We tend to look at them as one way. Right. You get one shot at it. Right. That's it. Absolutely. Although yeah. reinvention is one of the themes here in, in Hollywood. and It is. That you can be anything at any point. That you could be at a low. I mean, I'm thinking of a company like uh, Stuart Butterfield, Slack. You know, it failed. Mm-hmm. And then Slack happened out of it because it was a, a communication system they used within the failed company. I'm so curious. Love well, stories do, like do you that. have a, a, a strong opinion about failure? I think it's fine. Okay. I think here they celebrate. They pretend celebrate it, but they definitely it is pretend celebrate, though, pretend isn't celebrate, it? Yeah. Because I, my, my theory is that, uh, especially in Silicon Valley, failure is great as long as it's the backstory to your success. Exactly. You, yeah, know? you know, I think they live on that Steve Jobs myth in the mythology around right. failing. But if Steve Jobs being fired, if he continued to fail, we wouldn't celebrate him. No, he didn't of course ultimately not. Succeed. I think I think everybody looks at that and and they compare it to what happening is happening at Yahoo, but. It's only happened once, really. <laughs> well, if I can, there's there's this notion I stumbled across called failure indices. Mm-hmm. And it's this idea that the, the genius, the creative genius, is very good at remembering how and where they failed. It's mm-hmm. almost like they bookmark it in their sure. brain. And then when they f- are confronted with a new problem, they will retrieve that place they failed and, and try it out again. They're always, they're willing to backtrack. So this idea that you should, if you fail, you should forget it and move on is wrong. If you fail, you should remember it and move on. Well, I think it informs a lot. I think you can think of Travis Kalanick of Uber. He had two mm. very failed companies before Uber. And I think it fueled a lot of the aggression into Uber and right. having to succeed. Right. We're here talking with Eric Weiner, author of The Geography of Genius and about where that comes from, an important topic in Silicon Valley. And we're going to talk about more when we get back from this break. Hello, I'm Peter Kafka. You are someone listening to Recode Decode. And if you're enjoying this interview, you won't want to miss Code Media 2016. Last year, Nick Denton joined us. So did Chelsea Handler. So did Mark Cuban. Let that image sink into your head for a minute. And now you can listen to some audio of that. I mean, when we started AudioNet in 1995, we started saying bits are bits. The money is still in TV. Facebook is clearly the strongest and most powerful. We can't afford to be dependent on them because we have something that we want to do. It was too much attention. I wasn't excited to see me anymore, so I could only imagine how other people felt. Fun, right? This year we're going to have John Skipper from ESPN, Shane Smith from Vice Media, a bunch of other folks, some of whom we have yet to announce but are pretty cool. You can view the full speaker lineup and register at recode.net slash events. We'll see you there very soon. Um, let's finish up last with Calcutta and then we'll yeah. get to Silicon Valley. So I wouldn't even thought about this. Explain why. So if you were to... Tra- this is what time period? This is late 19th, early 20th century. And if you were to time travel there, you would find it to be remarkably creative. You would find a Renaissance man named Rabindranath Tagore, who mm-hmm. was a poet, essayist, activist, educator, uh, the first non-Westerner to win the Nobel Prize for Literature. You would find a scientist named Bose, not related to the headphones, but mm-hmm. the same cultural background, uh, who's doing amazing work and may have invented the radio before Marconi. Uh, And what's interesting about Calcutta was the collision of British and Indian culture. And there's always that collision of cultures in these places of genius. And Mm -hmm. what emerges is your classic, the whole was greater than the sum of the parts. What emerged was a culture that was neither British nor Indian, Bengali. So you are talking about a diversity of races, though, in that regard. Yeah, as long as the races bring with them different ideas of mm-hmm. seeing the world. You can have people from different races who see the world the same way. But in India, that was not the case. And I thought also that Calcutta was a great sort of stand-in to examine the notion of chaos. Because mm-hmm. uh, have, have you been yes. to India? chaotic. Yeah, it is chaotic. It's and disturbing. Yes, and, and you know, I lived there for several years. I have this 
India problem. I keep going back because mm-hmm. I, I love and hate the place. And I know exactly. How yeah, you feel. and for first-time visitors, especially, you just see chaos everywhere. But an Indian would say, "No, this isn't chaos. They're hidden orders here. Yeah. That Chaiwala selling the tea is always there doing that thing." And you know, I think that having a lot of stimuli is important for creativity. Yeah. And disordered or apparently disordered stimuli, and and there's just an awful lot of there in India. Yeah. Well, disorder is something you talked about, this idea of chaos and yes. disorder. It, what does it do to the mind? What is it? It, okay, when I use the word disrupt, I was told myself I would not no, do that. No, go right ahead. Okay, but it, it's we'll one thing. We'll get to pivot later. We'll get to being say, able to pivot. It's one thing to say fuck. It's another thing to yeah. say disruption. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. Um, it disrupts the pattern, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, it disrupts literally the EEG of our brain, and uh, chaos is not the same as anarchy. Mm-hmm. Anarchy is a complete lack of order. Chaos might be a hidden order. Chaos might be a transitional state mm-hmm. to a new order. Um, and, you know, not to pick on the Swiss, but Graham Greene famously said of the Swiss, 500 years of peace and stability, and what have they brought the world? The cuckoo clock, uh-huh. which is actually a German invention. Um, but his point is, Their well, chocolate is very nice. It is very nice, yeah. and they've got some creative banking, it's I still, think. But still, they go down to Mission Street here in San Francisco, and there's right. all sorts of chocolate innovation going on. Right, right. So um, you need to have things shaken up from time to time. What did Thomas Jefferson said, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit of, uh, rebellion is necessary for a the demo- blood of yeah the yeah well you, you need a, the tree of liberty or yeah you don't need blood but you need uh, you need tension metaphorical you need some conflict yeah mm-hmm. you need um, and chaos is it shouldn't be a, a four letter word. It's five letters. Five Four letter word with another letter. Yeah, on it there. shouldn't be a four letter word with another Chaos. letter. Yeah, we Chaos. should, um, if not embrace it, at least acknowledge its so role. Before, of all these places, all these historical places, you're, you're, there's some themes that they all share in common, obviously. Yes. And each of them have a separate thing that's more special. Right, exactly. Um, in doing it. And when each of these ended, though, what was the ending? What ca- Is it just that they have to end? They have to break apart? No, they. Is, they came into being for different reasons, but they ended for the same reason. In a word, arrogance. Mm-hmm. I really do believe. Oh, dear. And, We're in trouble here. Yeah. Um, creeping vanity, as one historian said of Athens. And mm-hmm. I like that term mm-hmm. because it doesn't – you don't just wake up one day and say, oh, my God, I'm, I'm arrogant. It sneaks up on you. Mm-hmm. And the problem with uh, arrogance is that there's no room for ignorance in arrogance. Right. Um, you know everything. You know everything, and therefore you've lost that openness because – The one psychological trait that's most important for creativity is openness to experience. It's Mm -hmm. true for people and it's true for places. This place has been open to experience. It's a a broad idea, but you get it. And uh, once you start to close down... And you close down because of your success and your interestingness. I think what what happens is when you become successful, you have something to lose. Mm -hmm. So you lose that risk-taking because all of a sudden taking a risk, their stakes are higher. Uh, and, you know, doing it this way has worked, so you continue to do it that way. And self-disruption is a very difficult thing to it do. It is. very. It's yeah. interesting. I was just talking to, and we'll get into Silicon Valley in a second, the culture here. I was talking to someone, very famous founder here, and I said something against what he was saying, and he sort of looked at me like, you're doubting me? And, and, and I said, oh, I'm sorry. I knew you before you were a genius. Um, and he sort of was like, what are you talking about? And I said, everybody licks you up and down all day long. That must be hard to be interesting after that, like to be wrong. And so- Did you really say that? Yeah. And they were like, that's not true. And, and it, was, it was a really interesting 
experience because I did know him before he could actually accept conflict or someone who disagreed with him. And right. Something had happened in the personality. and Not it, something good. No, it started because he started doing the downward dog yoga position in front of me while I was speaking to him. And I said, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> and he's like, what's wrong with that? And I said, it's rude. Like, Were you, was it a yoga class? No. It was, it was he's just, just doing yes, downward I want to get my exercise. I'm like, well, I'm sorry, you big friggin' baby. It was amazing. And that, you know, and, and then we disagreed about oh something else. God. And it was like the most disturbing. And it was previously that was okay. And then it suddenly wasn't. And it was, it literally was because yeah. every single person in his life agreed with yeah. him almost continually. Can, can you hold a second, Kara? I want to sure. do some downward dog. Okay. All right. No, please do not. Just, no, I okay. Right. Um, I'm when not we a get back, we're I can't talk, get away with that. When we get back, we're talking about Silicon Valley. And I want you to read. I want you to begin yeah. by reading when okay. we start. If you're listening to this, you probably already know that Recode Decode is twice a week, every Monday and Thursday. And now we've got a new show. It's called Too Embarrassed to Ask, and it's hosted by Lauren Good and me, Kara Swisher. Every Friday, we answer your burning tech questions and review the latest gadgets. And we also like to bring in special guests along for the ride, those poor people. You can find all of our podcasts at recode.net slash podcast, and you can subscribe to Too Embarrassed to Ask at iTunes.com slash Too Embarrassed to Ask. We're here with Eric Weiner, the author of The Geography of Genius. His previous book was The Geography of Bliss. They're both doing well, correct? You, here's your plan, chance to say how fantastic you are. Well, I don't want to be arrogant because we've determined that that is bad for genius. <laughs> as long genius. as you're not doing yoga uh, while you're doing geography it. Of, <laughs> geography of Genius is currently number 19 on the New York Times hardcover nonfiction. Right, right. Um, well, people so, are interested in this topic, correct? The, the the idea of everyone wants to be a genius. And I think, again, it's been fueled by Silicon Valley and these technocrats yeah. becoming celebrities now. We do have a bit of genius inflation, though. Yes. Because if everyone's a genius, agree. then nobody is. Oh, and, I agree. And my I, theory about genius is as soon as you modify it, as soon as you describe, you know, Steve Jobs as a marketing genius or mm-hmm. there's any or a political genius for someone else, as soon as there's a modifier in front of it, you're no longer a genius. But there, but there is know? a celebration of that here um, in, in the idea that this is the thing to aspire to. They get on covers of magazines. They're special. You're right. right. No, if everybody's special, they're gods. Yeah. No, let's be honest. Right. They are the secular world's gods. Right and you now. look at the adulation of of a Steve Jobs in a morning of his passing, and it was I thought very religious. I mean, yes. And we treat these people though as if they just come here like shooting stars. You mm-hmm. can't predict Down their arrival. Yeah, the gods have bequeathed these gods to us, and um, it, it doesn't work that way. That it's it's really a product of place and time and as I say in the book, we get the geniuses that we want and that we deserve. So let's talk about these geniuses here in Silicon Valley. Okay. And, and technology. Okay. Okay. No, you air, to Jack no, Ma. no air quotes. Around. No air quotes. Okay. But I don't think they're, most of them are not geniuses. Mm-hmm. They have some good ideas. But there are some commonalities. What do you think the commonalities here are that have worked, that are good for it? And what do you worry about? Well, I'll, t- I'll put it this way. When I came it's here... Silicon not in this book. It is in the book. It is in the book. I'm yes. Sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> in fact, I can... Here, let me... Uh, I can read a section from my Silicon Valley yes. chapter, which is where I end up. And after having traveled, you know, back in time into all these places, the thing that struck me is it felt familiar when right. I got here. You know, it. it I, I didn't feel like I was in some new... Place of genius. I saw signs of and the these. commonalities it has to these other places over his, over history. Can I read a bit? Yes, absolutely. Sure. Throughout my time in Silicon Valley, I keep having flashbacks. I keep thinking, wait, this isn't new at all. This is the way they did it in Athens or Florence or Hangzhou. I don't say this out loud, of course. Nobody wants to hear it. They're too caught up in the illusion that Silicon Valley was created ex nihilo from nothing. 
Silicon Valley, in fact, is a Frankenstein place assembled from bits and pieces of golden ages past and soldered together into something supposedly new. Everywhere I look, I detect echoes of these golden ages past. As in ancient Athens, people here are motivated by something other than personal gain. They're doing it not for themselves, at least not only for themselves, but to further their religion, making the world a better place through the transformative power of technology. A recent survey by the consulting firm Accenture found that people who work in Silicon Valley care more about what their peers think than do people who work elsewhere. They are deeply loyal workers. Their loyalty, though, is not to any particular company, but to one another and to the creed of technology. This is perfect. This is absolutely perfect. Yeah. This idea of them thinking that they're new when they're not, or that there's any history. There was a, I did a thing around Robert Noyce the other day, the yeah. creator, one of the great sure. uh, early entrepreneurs, founder of Intel. And, you know, it, so I think David Brancacci asked me, like, when you say Robert Noyce, what do people say? I'm like, they don't. They don't. None of these younger entrepreneurs. They don't, they don't care for history. No consciously, mm -hmm. but there is a tradition here. Like, mm -hmm. take the open plan office. If you start a new startup, mm -hmm. you're like, we must have an open plan office. Right, which is Why? from Robert Noyce, by the way. Right, right. and it's, it's pretty mixed evidence mm -hmm. about whether they work from a right. creativity point of view, but right. people don't question it because that's the way... Everyone has to have it. It's done, yeah. And, uh, also, the toys in these offices that has to be juvenile. The, right. The juvenility, I think, is quite but that's, unusual. But that's, that's become a tradition, right. actually. I mean, right. when Google started it, right. it wasn't really a tradition, but right. now the beanbag chair and the ping pong table has become a, a tradition. And I think that the thing that Silicon Valley misses is that all innovation, all creativity is built upon the past. Right. If I were to invent something that was totally new, unrecognizable, you know, a coffee cup that was just didn't look like any other coffee cup, you wouldn't know what to do with it. You right. know, it has to be recognizable and it's always incremental and it's you're always standing on the why, shoulders why, of why, giants. Why then here do they think revolutionary or different? Why do they think it's new? What is it a, just a mass delusion? You know, I was in Scotland and I was asking the question of that place. We didn't place. talk about Scotland, no, yeah. but, but this will apply here. I said, how did the Scots do it? They were small and quarrelsome, dirty, drunken place. And it, it, it was a place of genius. He said, well, the Scotsman told me, well, we believed in our own myth. Right. And people in Silicon Valley believe in their own totally. myth. But that actually can be a good thing. Because myths, in the sort of Joseph Campbell sense of the word, are, are not just things that are false and untrue and that must be slayed. They're very powerful. So what are the useful. myths here? And who are the okay, important well, the, the myth is, people in these myths? Okay, one, one myth is that you can create something from nothing. That when you create something new, it's unlike anything that has ever come before. Not true. Absolutely. Absolutely not true. Another myth is probably that you can change the world with your device right. or your gadget. Instagram will make will solve cancer. That you don't, you know, Darwin didn't, there was no app for natural selection. Right. <laughs> or, you know, so <laughs> there he, will be now. But he, his leap was a was conceptual, and um, it seems to me then Silicon Valley people don't give much thought to conceptual leaps. They're, is that they're not a problem? I think it's a problem I because do too. you know. Ultimately, it's the conceptual leaps that matter, and they think, well, we'll come up with a new technology that will lead to a conceptual leap, not necessarily. So what I think of that a lot. I always I use the phrase, uh, there's a lot of big minds chasing small ideas here. You know, there's a lot of very smart people, and they tend to focus on not. Now, lately, right. they have been going for bigger ideas, cars and healthcare. Is that bigger? Well, you could think about it. I mean, if you think of a car as not as changing our country, making small cities impossible, intolerance, you could move 
the car had more of an impact than just the car. It would be able to move. For Do you example. think Silicon Valley is a one-note town or a many-note town? I think it tends towards a one-note, but could right. be more. I would argue that the mobile phone is the mo- one of the most important devices I, 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 ever created. I tend to think of it as one note played in different keys. I mean, well, explain that then. Well, I mean, it's all technology, mm-hmm. okay? We today, and you know, I, maybe this is, again, heretical on your show, but uh, please, we, please. we just think of innovation in technological terms. I mean, we, the words are so closely linked. Right. But, you know, throughout history, great places have not, not all of them have cared about technology. The Athenians didn't care about technology, partly because they had slaves to do the mm-hmm. work. The Florentines didn't really care about technology. The um, Romans did. I mean, you had They did, but who do we admire more? Probably right. the Greeks. Well, we like the roads a lot. Roads are great. Yeah, well, roads are good, and, and aqueducts are nice, but, you know, democracy and theater can't yeah. be those. <laughs> so where, where is the world of ideas out here? And where is the interdisciplinary nature? The best example I can think of is Pixar, where mm-hmm. you have Hollywood and Silicon Valley coming together. That That's interdisciplinary. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, hardware, software, it is all technology. And, you know, why is Steve Jobs considered a genius? Because we get the geniuses so we want. And that talk about Jobs. Why is he considered a genius from your perspective? Because he really is the saint that right. still. Well, I, I would, when I was researching the book, I'd go is to Is there Con- anyone else? Zuckerberg, maybe. Well, Chief Jobs has the advantage of being dead, yeah. which does but help. But at the time, he still was. I mean, people. That's true. That's and Elon true. Musk is kind of in He's taken from, his place. Right. Um, it fits this romantic notion. They fit the romantic notion we have of genius. They're odd. They're difficult. They seemingly create magic, create things out of nothing. They don't seem to need to have anyone else working with them as a team. But, of course, these are myths. They, they need that. Mm-hmm. Um, and ultimately, it's, it's what they're producing, right? Mm-hmm. We get the geniuses we want and we deserve. So in 18th century Vienna, what did people care about? Music. Who were the geniuses? Beethoven and Mozart. What do we care about? Technology. Who were our geniuses? Steve Jobs, Elon Musk. Are these bad geniuses then? Are they not? When you're saying we get what we deserve, what do we deserve? I mean, we shouldn't be surprised if people were saying, where are the Einsteins? Where are the Darwins? Where are the Beethovens? Why are we stuck with the Steve Jobs? Some people on the East Coast say that. I don't know if they say that on the They do not say that here. Okay. In fact, we're, the police are going to get oh, them no. and take you away. But, um, the tech police. I mean, I would go to a cocktail party in Washington, D.C. and say, is Steve Jobs a genius? And it was 50-50. Ah, what, would, what would it be here? Yeah, but they're holding blackberries in their hands there. So let's not... <laughs> not what would it be here? Could it walk oh, 100%. 100%? Okay. Or Elon Musk. Or it would be Steve Jobs would be the first thing out of their mouth. Right. So they're, they're the pinnacle. They're, they're doing seemingly magically what everyone else wants to do in producing something that we care about. Now, the, the rap on Steve Jobs, and you probably know this better mm-hmm. than I do, is that he didn't invent anything. No. Now, does that matter? He brought things together. You were right. taught you that was a thing of genius. It's synthesis. synthesis. He wasn't a know-it-all. Tastemaker. He was a see-it-all. Yeah. Right? He saw something mm-hmm. that others didn't see. Einstein wasn't the best physicist of his day. Others knew more physics, but he saw things and made right. connections. And, and um, there's a reason we have the term visionary. Mm-hmm. It's the vision thing. It's seeing connections, not just knowing a lot. Right. Um, Wozniak probably knew more, right? Well, there were a lot of phones. There was one, the general magic device looks like an iPhone, right? But it, it took the iPhone to do Then iPhone, there was one before at Apple that didn't work out. Their devices, their, uh, their Newton. Um, but it, what was interesting we're all plagiarists, is, plagiarists, right? But yes, exactly. And I think that's the well-known story about both Gates and Jobs is stealing the the um, 
But they stole so well. Yes, that's they stole yeah. this stuff from Xerox yeah. at, at Xerox Park. And I, graphical I, I, user interface. And I don't know if that matters because well, you were if, saying if Xerox, mooching, mooching's important. Mooching is important, and that I was think, an outright steal. But don't don't you think this town, this region, Silicon Valley, mm-hmm. is filled with moochers? Uh, yes, they do, but they pretend they aren't. They do a hundred percent. They pretend they are. Well, that's believing in your own myth because it right. motivates you. Because it's hard to get out of bed and say, oh, "I'm going to go do some serious mooching today," yeah. you know, and yeah. make the world a better place. <laughs> but you can say, "I'm going to create something out of nothing," and, right. and that motivates people. So it's it's useful, and the myth of the lone genius is useful. It, it mm-hmm. motivates people, but it can be destructive too when you think that you know it's just a person sitting in there. In their the garage. garage. The they garage. The garage. Right. But what's interesting. There are garages, I right. say. I've been to the Google garage. I've been to the agency. But something we haven't talked about right. is that garages are uncomfortable in difficult places, mm-hmm. and that's important. Mm-hmm. You know, Steve Jobs waxed poetic about how when he dropped out of Reed College, he was living rough in the streets. And, right. and uh, those constraints and hardships are important. But then when you become successful, like a right. Google or an Apple, all of a sudden, the constraints are replaced with free food and free laundry service and beanbag chairs. And well, I, I worry about that. I've talked about it on many shows before, but yeah. I said uh, I always say that uh, San Francisco is assisted living for millennials mm-hmm. because they get everything. And they're in this, these little sort of everything is provided to That's them. That's a problem, right? Exactly. I, it's going to be one when everything falls out. Right. Because one, one of the conclusions I reach in the book is that creativity is a response to a challenge. Mm-hmm. And if you're not challenged, you're not going to be creative. And constraints are helpful. Robert Frost, if I can throw a little poetry in here, once said that writing free verse poetry is like playing tennis without a net. Mm -hmm. We need the net. Right. You know, uh, Twitter works partly because of the constraints of 140 characters. So let's finish up talking. I want you to do a reading at the very end, but of the Athens reading. Okay. Um, what is the danger here? You're saying a one-note town, a one-note. I mean, but everyone does look up to it, that this is a place of genius. You well, about. I'll give you one word, Detroit. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a one-note town. Mm-hmm. And when the note was popular, automobiles, it was doing very well. Yeah. We're assuming, and maybe it's just, a, you know, everyone, it's one of those assumptions that Socrates would question, that technology is always going to matter, this particular kind of technology, and we're always going to care about it, and that Silicon Valley will always be best at it. I have to say, it has bucked the trend. It hasn't. It's been around, depending on how, if you mark it from Hewlett and Packard's garage. That's what sixty, seventy years at mm-hmm. least, and that's a pretty good run. Um, and maybe it is remaining nimble and appreciating the value of smallness, but its future success is not is not guaranteed. So the things kill it, arrogance, just time. Time. Well, I think it's think of it as like a your kitchen, and in the cupboard you have ingredients. And if you have always the same ingredients and you don't replenish them with new ingredients, ultimately you can only make so many dishes. Right. You, know, you can go to that app that says, here's what I have, what can I make? Okay, at some point you run out. Um, so Silicon Valley needs to keep replenishing the ingredients. So is, is diversity important? It's a big topic right now, obviously, diversity in, in that it's all white guys of a certain age. Is it? Yes, it is. Okay, all right. I'm just, yes, the numbers are... Pretty much as a white guy of a certain age, I'm yes. just clearly blind <laughs> well, to old. this. I'm sorry I'm to tell you, you're too old. Thanks, but but um, but you? oh, uh, long past due, <laughs> long past due date. I'm I've got all kinds of knocks against me, but I, but, I mean, I gave but, a talk at Google the other day, but, and in the audience, there were Google people does. from Sweden. Yes, and, Google yeah. has it's a small world after all. 
effect. They do, they've tried harder than most companies. But there is this debate going on of the need for more women, more non-white people. I would say it's important as, age, long, age as long as those people come with different ideas. And it's true that if you're a woman, if you're Asian, whatever, you tend to bring a different worldview. Mm-hmm. But the danger is you will have this ethnic diversity but you won't have any intellectual diversity mm-hmm. because everyone will be drinking the same water or Kool-Aid or whatever, and uh, no one will be play the role of Socrates and say, um, excuse me, why do we have a ping-pong table here? Is that really necessary? Mm-hmm. You know, because whether you're from New Delhi or North Carolina... Well, I'm guessing they yeah. will be a little bit more questioning than if it's the same white guy from Stanford, the same exact, you know. They, it's got to help. Yeah. I mean, it's got to help. It's got to yeah. make it more likely. All I'm right. saying is that ethnic diversity is not a guarantee of intellectual diversity. All right. But, so um, what do you think is the next place of genius? Is there somewhere you're targeting? Yeah, see, I could impress you and Please say do. Uh, it's La Paz, Bolivia, but not for another 10,000 years. <laughs> Why is that? No, it's not. <laughs> I, because people want an answer to the but question. But is there something you see coming down the pike? I like I like, I like Estonia. Uh-huh. Um, you probably know. I like Estonia. Yeah, I, I would. If Estonia were a stock, I would buy it. Yeah, invented Skype, as I'm sure you know. Yes. And it's a last big thing. So what? What have you done for me lately? Well, Estonia? Have, I think they're doing things. They, no, they've got a free flow of information. They have a. They're small, but they have a strong culture. They were never really yes. russified by the Russians under the Soviet Union. They're a very important tech culture, actually. They're, right, they're, but they're. They're they're small and they've got they've got the chip on their shoulder, right? They're trying to prove something. And the Scots were that way. Silicon Valley was all about the chip, not the yeah, microchip. Outsiders. The chip on your shoulder. Outsiders. And you know, when I was researching the book, I dug up some clips from when Stanford University was founded by Leland Stanford, mm-hmm. and a New York paper sniffed. And I make I'm not kidding. Sniffed. It, it you sniffed, can smell the sniff. It sniffed and read. said. California needs an elite university the way Switzerland needs a retirement home for sea captains. And this pissed off the people in California. Yeah. So they they had something to push against. Right. They had the chip. And uh, I think it's it's important to, even if you are an insider, to continue to think of yourself as an outsider. Well, they try to do that. They do that right. to themselves, even as they're flying in their planes and drinking their homemade kombucha. It's important. They have, must continue yeah. to believe in their myth. When they right. no longer buy into their myth or... I would say the canary in the coal mine is the bling. You know, in the decade or so I've been coming out here, I notice yeah. more bling and bling. They try hard not to, compared to many rich people, right. they try really hard to pretend they're not. Right. Um, you know, that's why they wear fleece and jeans, mm-hmm. but the, the fleece is getting fancier, I think. And yeah. um, it, to me, it just sniffs of yep. arrogance, possibly. And I worry about that. But I think. It's got another is couple there, decades in it. I'm going to have you read last, but is there one area that should be innovated? Should be? Is there some? I'm pretty optimistic death? that India. What do you mean by I'm that? I'm an area topic that needs that 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 you think will be the next one. Technology was this one. Hmm. Boy, that's a good question. Um, health comes to mind as the world ages. Um, some breakthrough in that field. But again, see, even I'm not immune to this. It's technology. I get, we, we think yeah. of the future, and we just think of technology. And science fiction movies present the future in terms of technology. But, you know, there's the world of ideas that is not as snazzy on the big screen. And it may have, you know, we may fall out of love with technology. I know or maybe out of crazy. ideas. The internet has made us all twitchy. and. That's a whole other story. Yeah, um, that's your next But one. here's one thing that's interesting. I'll ask you this. 
why does Silicon Valley continue to exist as a place? Shouldn't it be the last place? Because what they're selling here is a placeless future. They, they're telling me I can be anywhere with my iPhone and with Skype, yet people keep coming here. Yeah. You know, why don't you have one person in Des Moines and another one in Tallahassee? Analog, Eric. It's not a dirty word. Analog. And it's not a four-letter word not either. A four-letter it's, word either. It's got lots so of letters. read the last thing. Oh, boy, I don't know what to... Athens. Okay, well, this sort of sums up my approach. Yeah, I think this will be good. So I've just arrived in Athens, and I'm jet-lagged, and I'm confused, and I'm overwhelmed about trying to figure out this mystery that was the golden age of Athens. And here's what's going on in my head. I plop down on my bed and thumb through the small library of books I've packed, a whimsical collection curated from the vast ocean of ink that ancient Greece has spawned. My eyes are drawn to a quirky little volume called Daily Life in Athens at the Time of Pericles. It's a pleasing antidote to the usual history, which is written from a mountaintop and is as dry as a desert. Historians typically track wars and upheavals and sweeping ideological movements like so many weather systems. Most of us, though, don't experience weather that way. We experience it down here, not as a massive low-pressure system, but as sheets of rain that slick in our hair a crack of thunder that rattles our insides, a Mediterranean sun that warms our face. And so it is with history. The story of the world is not the story of coups and revolutions. It is the story of lost keys and burnt coffee and a sleeping child in your arms. History is the untallied sum of a million everyday moments. Within this quotidian stew, genius quietly simmers. Sigmund Freud nibbling on his favorite sponge cake at Vienna's Café Landmann, Einstein staring out the window of the Swiss patent office in Bern. Leonardo da Vinci wiping the sweat from his forehead at a hot and dusty Florentine workshop. Yes, these geniuses thought big, world-changing thoughts, but they did so in small spaces, down here. All genius, like all politics, is local. Ah, fantastic. Thank you. Thank you so much, Eric. This was fun. This was great. Eric Weiner. The Geography of Genius. It's on sale now. You can get it online too, correct? It, yes, and it will... Which one do you prefer that people buy? Both, I'm a fan both of, uh, three or four times. Yeah, and the Audible edition mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. I'm a fan of analog books. Now that I've discovered that analog is not a dirty word, mm-hmm. I'm going to start using it all over Please town. Do. Please do. Analog, analog, analog. Analog, analog. Yeah. All right, Eric, thank, thank you. you so much. It was a fascinating conversation. I enjoyed it. Eric, it was great talking to you, and thanks for coming by. If you enjoyed the interview as much as I did, be sure to subscribe to the show. Be the first to listen to future episodes or catch up on previous episodes, including some really fantastic interviews that Peter Kafka and I have done with Lena Dunham, Shawnee Hilton, and Ev Williams, just to name a few, all on recode.net slash decode. And don't miss our other podcasts, Recode Replay and our newest show, Too Embarrassed to Ask. That's me and Lauren Good of The Verge answering all your burning tech questions. You can find both at recode.net slash podcasts. One of the best ways to support our show is to help us improve. And all you have to do is tell us a little bit about yourself. Take a short three-minute survey at recode.net slash podcast survey and help us by sharing your opinions on this show and how you listen to podcasts in general. The better we know you, the better the show can be. Take the survey at recode.net slash podcast survey. Thanks for listening. This has been another episode of Recode Decode. Recode senior media editor Peter Kafka will be here on Thursday, and I'll be back with our newest podcast, Too Embarrassed to Ask, this Friday, and back here on Recode Decode on Monday with another great guest. Tune in then. This has been Recode Decode, hosted by Kara Swisher, powered by digital media. 
For more hard-hitting interviews with insiders from the worlds of tech, media, and politics, subscribe to Recode Replay on iTunes, featuring candid conversations with leading voices like AOL CEO Tim Armstrong, Goldman Sachs' CIO Marty Chavez, the team behind the hit TV show Empire, Shark Tank investor Mark Cuban, and presidential candidate Hillary Clinton. They're all on Recode Replay.